Hello and welcome to the Winners Never Quit podcast. Start your week the right way with a laugh and a dose of motivation. Listen to the stories of our guests, learn from their experiences and how they have built a winner's mindset. Hosted by myself, Jack Jarvis. And if you could like, follow or subscribe to the podcast, I would really, really appreciate it. Today, I am joined by a man that needs no introduction, TV chef and all-round legend, Tom Kerridge. Tom, how the devil are you, mate? You Very good? well, thank you, Captain. I'm all all right, thank awesome, you. Awesome, mate, awesome. All all right. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me, mate. And um, because I'm a big fan, we're actually going to start this podcast a little bit differently. Yeah. I've got some delicious treats, mate, no, for I'm you to enjoy. <laughs> and uh, what we've got in front of me is a fire-pot food spicy pork noodle, a expedition food sweet and sour chicken with rice, and then a Thai chicken green curry. Now, this is what I've eaten, and being a absolute master behind the cooker i want to know your opinion so i'd like to know which one you want to try first and tell me what you think but do you know what the interesting thing about it the packaging right so the packaging is it's not made it's not sold as in look at this this is delicious to eat. there's no picture on it friend there's no serving suggestion no there there's really no, isn't it looks i mean it looks like well it looks like protein-led food. It looks like it's something that you would buy from, uh, I don't know, along with your protein shakes and your creatine and your whatever else. Do you know what I mean? Your gym material rather than a food substance. So yeah. it looks like, so, uh, you know, the bright orange packets and there's and it's just got the, the ingredients and the, the, the nutritional information, which is, which ain't very much, to be honest. <laughs> so it's, like, it's got, it, it tells you what, you know, the energy and the carbohydrates, but there, I can imagine that the freshness vibe that you want from vegetables <laughs> and all that sort of stuff is 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 lacking. And I've just opened the packet, and this is the sweet and sour chicken. So this with is my rice. Fa- this was my favourite when I was rowing across the Atlantic. So I'm really so it's interested one big to bag see. Bag of it, and it's a, it's like a bag. Of so it. Tom compared this to a fancy pop noodle, and, and Tom's really right. I mean, as much as you want them to be delicious when you're rowing or doing extreme insurance events it's all about just getting those calories into you and sustaining your body for as long as possible so he's chewing down not no gagging yet the sweet and sour chicken right i mean it's it's not bad it's not enough salt not enough salt so seasoning wise <laughs> like for flavor it definitely needs salt let me try it let me definitely need salt but it's all right i mean it's a bit i get it as fuel i mm. see it actually i'll tell you what the Thai green chicken curry, you open the bag and you look at that, the peas are bright green, which is like a bonus for considering they would have been... I mean, I still love that. I think that's great. So you talk about seasoning. That's better. It's yeah, the Thai, Thai green that. curry, yeah. I think that's... Do you know what? They're not bad. They're nowhere near as bad as you think they're going to be. They're, I mean, bad is the wrong word. They're, they're perfectly edible. There's nothing yeah. wrong with them. Like... If they were sold in a shop, can you buy them in a shop? Yeah, yeah, you buy them online. Um, um, Expedition Foods is actually a UK, or oh, they're both UK-based companies. Firepot down in Dorset, um, Expedition Foods up in Yorkshire. I mean, they are. This doesn't look so great. I've got to be <laughs> honest, right? So this one now, the spicy pork noodles. So the noodles aren't really noodly. They're all broken up quite badly. Okay, well, that's my worth one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That one, that one's not so good. I'm not going back for second. Okay. That. So that one, however, I can get, I get, you know, it takes up very little room in an expedition pack. And in terms of flavor-wise, it's nowhere, they're way better than you think. Like, listen, you're stuck in the middle of yeah. the ocean or the Atlantic or wherever, right? And you're on your own in a boat. You're having that. There's flavor to them. They yeah. taste. They're not, 
it's not depressing in any way. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's actually quite, you could, I could see you'd be looking forward to your meal. Yeah, 100% you know, and I so was. Could, yeah, which is great. You could look forward to eating one of those. Uh, they're, they're nowhere near as bad as I thought they'd be. They're, you know, they're, they're well, pretty good. good. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd eat them. And this is, this is, they've come on so much and I always talk about this because people often like first impressions. Like, How did you survive on them for 111 days? Well, for a start, I had nothing else. Yeah. I wasn't going to nip down the local M&S. Yeah. And also, if you frame your mindset and think about, instead of thinking about yourself, think about the boys and girls that did it in the 60s. They were on tins of spam. Yeah, yeah. You you imagine the difference between like post-war food or rationing, or you think that that's where people, you know, the sort of stuff that you survive on. Actually, that's not survival food. That's actually very tasty. It's mm. really nice. And although it is a, you know, it's worked it's work through, there's nutritional balance in that. There is flavor. And you can see that that's been developed by chefs in kitchens with an understanding of trying to put balance of flavor and ingredients and spicing and seasoning together. It isn't just, okay, this is fuel. That'll do. Get them out there. Yeah. Actually, they're well thought through and, and they are super tasty. So I can imagine how, you know, how actually you were looking forward to eating that. I mean, 800 calories. How so many calories do, a day were you burning? Probably about eight 8,000. So how many of those could you actually get through? So this was one of the problems on my row. I didn't nail my nutrition down. Right. Um, I should have taken 4,000 calorie meals per day. And I've actually got one of so this was what I would pull out from a hatch. They'd be right. taped together. Right. So I sort of underestimated. I was like, "Oh, I've got three meals. That's three thousand calories." But if you look there, I mean, only this one is a thousand calories. Those two are about what seven hundred, I think, five hundred. Yeah, five hundred. So you actually did your maths wrong. Yeah, really wrong. Just just a bit of lazy laziness. I was like, "All oh, right." So you could have my, done a whole other packet. That you could have done an extra one of those. Yeah, towards. But would that have taken up too much room, or would it have been all right? No, it probably would have been all right. Um, I had a bit of room on the boat spare. So when you do it again, <laughs> yeah. So when, I, when me and you do the Indian Ocean, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this is the people ask me why I started the podcast, and it's to try and find someone to row the Indian Ocean. It's yeah. all a big scam, mate. I'll be happy. To How sign long up. would the Indian Ocean take? So it's the same distance. Which is? Um, it's about 4,600 miles. Yeah. Um, nautical miles as well. So probably about 5,000 land miles. But what makes it not harder, but different set of challenges is is the Atlantic has a very sort of consistent weather systems. Yeah. As in, if you go the right time of year, you'll get the trade winds in the South Atlantic the same way. If you go in the summer, the Northern Hemisphere, yeah. you'll get the Gulf Stream and yeah. be sort of pushed along. It's just a real mix. You've got, Winds coming from the north, the sat the the um, Antarctic winds, so pushing you that way. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that, and also the Indian Ocean, whereas the Atlantic is landmass, deep water, landmass. In the Indian, you have, you know, really different eight, different um, different depths. Right. So you might go from ten, twenty miles deep to five hundred meters deep. And right. that water, obviously, Tom has Changes. got to has got yeah. to go somewhere. And yeah, it's not going down, is it? Into no. the into the bedrock, it's going up. Yeah. So it's a real, real uh, wavy. Yeah, it yeah. Real all over the place. Oh yeah, it's so it can be. It's a real sort of. Um, so how long will that take you? Us. Us. How yeah. long will that? How long will that take us? <laughs> so probably, I reckon, me, you, Warren, get him involved because he's <laughs> he's been messaging me about a uh, about a challenge. Probably, I reckon, as a pair. Again, I'd ninety days. 
But then I thought my La- Atlantic row was going to be 90 days. It ended up taking me 111. Yeah. yeah. So, so 90 days. So m- maybe 100. Maybe yeah, 100, 100, 110. Take 140 days worth of food. And, and then see what happens. And see what happens, yeah. I mean, that's, that's quite full on. And when, uh, in all honesty, when is the, the idea, the challenge? When do you think you'll take that on? So not next, not next season. Um, probably be 2025. Um, but you go in the summer. Right. It's a little bit different. So I set off in December for my yeah. Atlantic row. So you'd look to settle, have the boat in Perth or somewhere on the um, west coast of Australia and then look to go anywhere between sort of March. And how um, many miles a day do you row? Wait, how many miles? So I think my average was 40 miles a day. God, that's, my that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> what's, that, what's that, eight hours of rowing? No, plus? no, I was doing 14 hours of rowing a day. 14 hours yeah, of yeah, rowing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd wake up, Mate. wake up about half, no, wake up at five, start rowing at half five, two and a half hours on, an hour break. Four hours on, an hour break. Three hours on, an hour break. And then four and a half hours to finish the day. <laughs> it's nuts. When I sit here, right? And say it out loud. Yeah, and snooze my alarm this morning. I was like, oh, I'll get up at half six instead of six. Yeah. It's mental. But when you're in it, and you're living and breathing it, and your body is adapted to the food, to the lack of sleep, to the isolationism, you just do. Yeah, that's as simple as it is. Because when you're putting that situation Tom you've got no other option yeah, I was yeah, going to yeah. fucking live like yeah, yeah, I wasn't yeah. going to perish out there I was going to be successful so it was do it was do. that was the only option there was no the don't. mindset is incredibly important yeah like oh, find it finding that zone and did you find that zone day one when you left or was it like when you left the first part were you like were you in it then or did it take three or four days or a week or two or just going so it takes it takes about five days and funny I remember so it was two in the morning when my alarm went off because I Go out with the tide. No need to make it harder for yourself. You're no, going to no. be out there for <laughs> yeah. 90 days, I thought, yeah. at this point. Um, so it's two in the morning. I'm walking through uh, Lagos. Not a soul there. It's, you know, December. It's the season's yeah. over. Get me boat. I'm pushing off. And I just remember thinking, fucking hell, what am I doing here? Yeah. That is sort of when it dawns on you. And then you watch the land disappear. And then you're just like, right, I am in this now. And it takes five days. You're getting used to it. And, you, and I never thought, well, I couldn't quit because... Too many people knew about it, Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember thinking, I was like, I've either got to do this or I'll have to die out here. I couldn't yeah. face the shame. Yeah. And then you're just like, this is shit. Because yeah. the first day was good. I did 50 odd miles. Second day was only like 27, 28. Right. And I was like, oh shit. This could, this could take a little bit longer than I thought. But after that first five days, you're just in it. Like I said, your body adapts. You get used to the isolation. And the biggest thing I missed, Tom, was food. Yeah. Sorry, mum, dad, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, you just get used to it and... Again, you try and frame your mindset and think about how tough it could be. I was lucky. I had two satellite phones, um, had a BGAN, so a small handheld satellite, so I could send and receive a WhatsApp. When you tell people you have internet, they, oh, so you're watching the football, where? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to take, you know, three o'clock Saturday, have yeah. that off. Yeah. So, you, you know, I was very, I, if I needed to speak to someone, I could. Yeah. And again, I always used to say to myself, I volunteered to be here. No one put a gun yeah, to no, head. No, no one's made you. Yeah, yeah you're, this is your choice. You've yeah. chosen Stop to feeling do this. sorry for yourself, Jack. Yeah, and yeah. Again, you've got to think why I was doing it. Obviously, I wanted to get the world record and, and be the first person to do that route. But ultimately, I was raising money for my granddad who passed away with a brain tumour. Yeah. You know, people were really, their, their support was incredible. I was like, how can I quit? My best mate's donated 300 quid. Yeah, yeah. And my granddad battled a brain tumour. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I wanted to be here. So you can deal with the sore hands and the sore buttocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Don't worry, I won't, sh- won't show you those pictures, No, mate. not... I, I, yeah, <laughs> the food no need, was enough. There's no need to look at pictures of sore asses, <laughs> mate. <laughs> oh, but Tom, enough about... And I'm sure we can talk, go back to the row, but obviously I'm here to learn a little bit more about you. And I would like to open 
the questions with open the questions all sounds a bit formal don't it yeah <laughs> where is it where's yeah. the money <laughs> i'd like to open the question um with how do you define winning in your life i don't know it's quite weird so uh, when i look at what we've done and what we achieved and i look back at, and then what's going on with the business and how what's happened in my life i've never set out with any ambition so i've always been because people and I'm sure the conversations that I've had and other thing, interviews and whatever else, and you look at it and people deem it as what you do is is very successful. And in the world of, I suppose, restaurants and hospitality and pubs and that, and you look at it and go, yeah, I mean, we've stood the test of time. We've done very well. We've achieved accolades. We've done all of those things. But they weren't anything that we necessarily, they were. I didn't set out to do that. It was just, there wasn't an ambition and a drive and a thing. It was always to just be, a bit better every day and it was it's, it comes from a personal um i think it's it's just in you people that achieve stuff and do things and top business people i'm sure you've interviewed many will sit there and go actually they don't necessarily see themselves of what they've done is is a success or it is or it might be successful but actually every day there's the fear of it crumbling there's every day of it not every day you worry that the phone isn't going to ring every day is a constant battle every day you're you're there's a that slight little nervousness in your stomach about if this isn't working what do i do to get it better how do i get it so it's a relentless charge of trying to improve yourself your outlook what you're trying to do every day and also i think a lot of it comes down to your own moral compass of where you sit of like work hard be nice and, and then have respect for people yeah. but at the same point you have to have your own you have to have your own sense of direction and de- determination but where it's going there's never there's never been an end point for me there's never there's never like okay this is where we're going to get to and then we'll stop there's no it's always just relentlessly trying to improve little bits including yourself your own mental state or your own personal health or your own personal like position that you find yourself in always trying to find little improvements never never sitting back on your laurels and thinking that it's all okay so i so that drive for i don't know success isn't something that is um there's no end goal it's just trying to be a bit better and also things that are fun so you're talking about rowing the Indian Ocean, yeah. right? It, it, that, everything about that is not fun, but actually the idea of it, you're going, actually, it is fun. It's a challenge. Yeah. It's something. When I come through it, I'll get, you'll have a buzz. You'll have great days. You see that as a fun thing to do. Yeah. Not necessarily, it's not like jumping up and down on a trampoline, <laughs> but it is like, but at the end, you know, the, you get and the, the endorphins, the process. This is what you're seeing as fun. This, yeah. is your, this is your enthusiasm for it and whatever. And then, the, and then the point is going, well, I might break a world record by doing it or I might get, they're all added things. You're not looking at records to break necessarily. You're looking at things to do that go you mean you're talking about your mate who's running the length of africa you're a bit jealous yeah you go not because it's just because that sounds like a really cool thing to do so uh, uh, our drive and the way we do business as well and or i do business the way that i look at what we're going to do as a company is probably the wrong way of doing it because i don't look at bottom line i don't look at p l's i don't look at uh, yes of course they all have to work and of course they all have to sit into a budget otherwise it doesn't make sense that you wouldn't do it but at the same point the first question is does this sound like fun? Should we do it? Is it great? Like n- never do we question how hard it's going to be or whatever. It's just like, is it, is this going to be an experience? And those are the things that I think you should jump into and buy into. It's also, I think we, we, we operate, you don't, I don't, but most people, we operate on it. It's a seven day week, right? And a lot of people 
will work five days to have the two days off, mm. right? So, so many people find themselves in a working in jobs for five days to earn money to then enjoy their two days off, which I just think is just like, well, surely that's the wrong way around. It's got to be five days of work where you can earn your money, but surely you should just be doing something that you like and not be money. Mo- never. I'm not materialistic. I'm not money motivated. I have nice things. I've bought nice stuff because I've been able to afford it because, but that's not the motivation. Mm. It's always just been about it's actually, a byproduct. It's a, exactly. So it's always been about the focus of going, I'm very lucky that as an 18 year old, I went into a kitchen. I thought this is an industry for me. I absolutely love it. Not once do I question how many hours I worked all the way through to this point. Not once do I question what days I've got to do. I do a little bit more now because I'm a bit older and I've got a family and whatever but the you know you just go with this is great you become you live a life what you do defines you not what you're doing to then have two days off at the weekend and I think those are also quite key factors in where most people are successful or what they would deem as success isn't about necessarily monetary value it's about essentially are they quite are they happy in what they're doing and if you operate at 80% happiness that's a pretty good space to be in it yeah, because yeah, no, one, no one's 100% happy all the yeah. time because you're not, you know, even if you love your job. That's and an still A star in an exam, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even if, even if you love your job and your life and your work, you will still have, I don't know, a shit day at work. You will still be let down by a supplier. You will still have an issue with, I don't know, whatever. You might have an argument with your girlfriend. You may have a whatever. You love your girlfriend very much, but you've had a falling out over, I don't know, where the Hoover was. or <laughs> Like, you know, tell me, that's a shit day. But you still love what you, you do. You know what I mean, it's all of those things. So you you could operate if you operate around about eighty, eighty five percent, or like on a hugely positive vibe. That's a pretty good space to be, I think. I remember a I listened to a podcast about a guy that has a podcast. Um, <laughs> it's a Liverpool one, and he says, "I don't make as much money as I used to. I used to manage restaurants, but my job now is talking about Liverpool Football Club." He was like, "I genuinely do, and if you find something you love, you never work a day in your life." And I really. And as I'm transitioning out of the army, that's what I'm looking for. Because like you said, when I was on that boat, I didn't fucking miss any of my nice things. Balenciaga yeah. t-shirts. Um, I got this lovely Land Rover Discover, Discovery from Jardine Motors. I didn't miss that as nice yeah. as it was. And if you are listening, I'd love to have it back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I missed you know, my friends and my family. So I totally understand where that's where that comes from, Tom. And if you're lucky enough to find that early doors and recognise that that's what actually makes you happy. But also there are some people out there that are motivated by money and they are motivated by business and that is what makes them happy. The people that, you know, if you look at someone like, I don't know, Alan Sugar, for example, yeah. someone who's a multi, multi millionaire that has made his money, that makes him happy because he smashes business. That's yeah. what drives him. That's yeah. what excites him. That's If that is your motivational force, that's great. But you shouldn't be jumping into that world just to be making money because you think that money makes you happy. Yeah. Like, that's not what makes you, you happy. You must know a lot of rich people that are pretty miserable. Yeah, I, yeah. well, there's loads of people. You see, yeah, we, you see loads of it. You see loads of it that people that are successful, people that have done what you would deem from the outside. You look at them and they've got a nice, great big house and they've got whatever, but they hate their job. They have yeah. a su- Sunday night before, you know, they're going to bed at nine o'clock at night because they've got to get up at five to get on a commuter train to get into whatever else to go and earn their 200 grand a year plus or whatever they're doing. And they and they go, you know, and their life is just like, God, this is, you know, it's a, they, they have a downer on a Sunday night yeah. because they know they've got that Monday morning feeling. Like, that isn't how to live a life, is it? You no. should be, you should be, but it is easier to say that if you're in a position 
where you are quite successful. It is easier to say that because some people go like, I can't afford this. I can't afford that. We can't afford to pay the mortgage. We don't, we're not a homeowner. We've got kids that are hungry. You've got to whatever. You know, there is, you have to find that balance because mm. not everybody can make themselves happy by just doing what they want. You yeah. Know? You, you have to find that balance, don't you? Yeah. And it does. It is a fine line to walk because I'm in a luck, uh, good position now. I've got no kids, no no wife or anything like that, so I can afford to leave the army. Yeah. But I see a lot of lads that are in the army now, and, and they still love it, but they they haven't got that option because no. they have got to provide. Yeah, um, they, you, you get caught. They're caught in a circle. They love the army. They want to do go yeah. and do something else, but actually, how do they earn the same sort of money or the, exactly. the lifestyle or where they've got to? And it is you get caught in this kind of circle, and I, and you see it happens with so many different people across the board. But I think a lot of that should come down to the education system. It comes back into schooling. So you know, we talk about. Uh, you know you see the government talking about everyone having to do maths until they're 18 and do whatever that's not like a, that wasn't for me no it wasn't for you that's no, why you no. joined the army it's like, there's lots of people that are hugely positive hard-working creative uh, you know um uh, running vocational-led businesses that are employing vocational-led people but doing maths to your 18 is irrelevant mm. you know it's about getting up and doing stuff and we should be encouraging kids a lot more follow their heart, do what they want. But the one thing we have to teach them is a work ethic. Mm. No matter what it is, you have to work hard. Nothing comes for free. You don't row across like the globe yeah. like, without having to work hard, train hard, focus on it, go through a load of shit. You don't win two mission stars, but it's not just fun. It's, it's a lot of shit it's you graft, have to wade yeah. through. You have to, yeah, it's a work ethic. But if you work and you drive yourself for that work ethic, you can achieve anything, no matter what like chosen career it is and I think sometimes we miss that point of going actually it's about a work ethic not about ticking boxes of getting particular grades and GCSEs and A levels and I don't know degrees and then postgraduate degrees and all of these sorts of things because that doesn't lend to happiness that just lends to you've just got lots of numbers and letters after your name and ticked yeah. a load of boxes that still doesn't make you happy yeah going back to maths how many times have you used algebra since you left school never yeah exactly never, 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 never. although you know, you do use kind of like fractions or you do use um, math in a lot of way of working out when you run a business mm. you know understanding gross mm. profit margins and getting that but you know, the initial part, you, you don't have to do that. You yeah. have to be able to cook. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You yeah, have to exactly. be able to cook. And then you can work, you work through that as you get older throughout the kitchens and you understand, you yeah. have to start taking an understanding of it. But yeah, the reality of it is that if, if we taught a lot more in the terms of work ethic rather than actually, you know, exam status, it, you get a lot more out of a lot of younger children, a, a lot of kids, a lot of youth and young adults that are coming out into society that... At the minute, it feels at the focus that if you don't get your exams, you're not going to make a success. Well, that's completely untrue. There's two people sat across this table that have done successful yeah. things and done quite, you know, because they've just worked They didn't go to college, didn't go to university. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly, exactly. So we're talking about it there. Where did this passion for cooking come from, mate? It was an 18-year-old. I went into a kitchen. I needed money. So <laughs> I, I, I literally, I went in to wash up. Yeah. And I was very, very lucky that all of a sudden there was an industry that grabbed me and the excitement of it, the left field way of, uh, of, uh, of way of life, you know, that you work weekends, you work in the evenings. My mates left school, same as me. One, um, followed his heart and went into working in theater, actually musical theater. And, uh, he's now an agent. Another one went off to play, uh, professional rugby and is now a head coach at a top team. So he played his whole career. And so the three of us that were good mates followed our vocational 
heart. And there was others that just went on to building sites. Some went off to uh, college. Not many went to university at the school I went to. Um, and then a lot of them just got kind of lost in this working Monday to Friday, then go out on a Friday night, Saturday night on the lash, Sunday chill, bit of Sunday lunch with the family and then back to work on a Monday. You yeah. know, that kind of got into that rhythm. And there was three of us that didn't follow that and just wanted to go with whatever we wanted to do. And I, I, I just went into a kitchen and thought, actually, this this vibe, this excitement, the space that it is, is brilliant. The people that you're surrounded by, you know, there's there's energy, there's an excitement about it, there's adrenaline, there's um, there's deadlines, there's lunch and dinner, there's things that you've got to get ready for. There's you know, there's there's waiting staff. There's a I really like the juxtaposition as well of the people that work in hospitality. A lot of them have come from backgrounds like mine or wherever. And it's always actually the most embracive, eclectic cultural mix of people in hospitality from everywhere. So, so it's global from all over Europe and the world. Uh, you get, it doesn't matter. It's the most embracing. It doesn't matter on race, religion, sexuality, like none of it, none of it matters. You're in a kitchen, you're in a space. It's who Every, can make good food. Yeah. I, and, and it's a really good buzz. And, you know, it's all, also, you know, it's slight. It's a bit like a pirate ship. There's lots of like naughty boys and girls in there that are slightly lost by society that have then found themselves in a place with fire and knives and like an environment that's that's buzzing. Yeah. But that, but it also has structure. It has discipline. It has, you know, there are deadlines and it's run by a head chef and a sous chef. And there, it's very easy to understand that you start at the bottom. You might be a kitchen porter. You might be a, a commie chef. And then you, you're learning. There's a career progression. It's very easy. It's very clear. It's very defined to understand where you go. Um, it has discipline, but it also has excitement. You never know. Not every service is the same. Not everything, like everything changes. Every day is a different day. And you, and it's also there's so much to learn. Food is just such a huge Surely and vast it's never subject. Ending. It never ends. Yeah. It's never ending. It's never ever ending. It's also it's affected by fashion. It's affected by trends. Great cities. You can travel the world. There's so many things that all of a sudden it becomes, fucking hell. This is su such an open door from coming from a, a small. Um, closed school environment which is why hospitality is great I think because so many people go through it loads of your friends I'm sure have understood it have been in it worked in a bar or a coffee shop or work in a hotel or have washed up or have done you know you get top surgeons and you get lawyers and you get all sorts of different people whose first actual job has been working in a student union bar or has been hospitality is that first place where people connect and so, so your peer group normally when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, is the people that are all your age, probably like-minded, the parenting and the schooling is the same, The th you know, and your connection and your only form of discipline is necessarily the teacher or the lecturer yeah. that's above you. All of a sudden you go into a work environment and your equal may be 10, 15 years older than you or maybe like um, come from a completely different country and their second language is English and all of it, all of a sudden it opens this whole world and then you meet guests and customers who are completely different, you know. So all of a sudden your your world, this door opens into this wonderful kind of um, embracive society behind the scenes. But at the front, you, your eyes are completely open to so much and it becomes a really exciting industry to be in. And some people will get it and learn communication skills, learn to be able to talk to customers. Now, whether that's a family with the kids that have come through the door, or whether it's an old couple that's celebrating their, I don't know, 50th wedding anniversary, or whether, you know, you gauge, you learn how to speak to people, you communicate. And so much comes through hospitality in terms of communication and setting people up for life. 
that don't necessarily stay in the industry, but they might spend two or three years whilst they're at university doing it, that when they look back now as, I don't know, 50-year-olds, they'll see that those are foundations to be able to communicate and talk that comes out of it. And it, so it's it, it's an industry that is incredibly exciting for that point of view. So my um, grandma and granddad used to own a pub, so I used to, my first job was an underwater ceramic technician, used to wash dishes up in a pub. I love that. <laughs> um, and I loved it, but it's funny you say about the excitement because I don't know if you've got a midweek shift, you maybe two tickets, and it's boring. But mate, on like a Friday, Saturday night, when yeah. the pub's buzzing, there's like three or four tickets on all the time. You get one straight, there's another one replaces it. There is a buzz, mate, yeah. and I love it, and I can see why people, you think about me, rode the Atlantic, but I still found that like a different kind of buzz, and I fucking loved it. Yeah, and yeah. it's so true. Everything you say, mate, I totally agree with. Yeah, it's not as extreme as that. You're not going. <laughs> you're not. You're not going to die in a kitchen. You're not yeah. on your own, and you're not going to eat like freeze dried food like that. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, there might. Be I don't know. You might die in a yeah. kitchen when you <laughs> yeah. drop a special, mate. The head chef's <laughs> winging a meat hammer at you. Oh, that's happened to me a but, few times. But it's it, you know, it, it, but you do get similar sort of buzzes. The way that I look at it is, it's a bit like a sportsman is a professional sport. like you have to train you have to understand you have to have all your prep work done you have to have everything in line to understand how you're going to attack service but then when you get into service it's a bit like going into a game you're not quite sure what's going to happen you've got a game plan yeah. you understand it but you have to be able to adapt and move and you get that kind of adrenaline you get that kick it's not quite the same as I'm sure as playing in Wembley or whatever but, but that kind of energy that you get is good, and yeah. then you get it twice a day, and you get it for lunch and dinner, and you you've got you get a buzz out mm. of it. And if you enjoy that kind of environment and that that pressure, then it's a great workspace to be in. A lot of people these days, I mean, they people are scared of putting themselves under pressure. People are scared of actually going, you know, oh, I'm not, you know, it, 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 it's not really the the world for me. But actually, you gain so much by pushing yourself by. You know better than anybody. If your comfort zone is like that big, a small little circle, but you step out of it, then the next and you deal it with grows. it, it, gets, it grows. And every time you do something that's not comfortable, but you get it right, but it's also good to get it wrong. Like mistakes are amazing; they're the best things to learn from. Because if you don't make mistakes, how are you ever going to grow? You can't. You can't just be good at everything. Mm. You're just not born brilliant at fucking everything. Yeah, you're not. You have to have a go at stuff to understand what's gone wrong, and then what happened that time. How do I d make that sure that doesn't happen the next time? And, you know, that kind of personal and professional growth, no matter what you do in, in terms of life outlook, is so, so important. And that's probably one of the things that we're most proud of in our company and our business, that we've got people that have been with us for like 16 years plus that have grown with us as a company and have gone on to be head chefs and front of house managers and general managers and all those sort of spaces, win mission stars for themselves, that because we encourage people to make mistakes, take responsibility for something, do it. It's not just about me, it's about you. You have... But you have to recognize in them that they have that sense of self, um, understand the DNA of your business, but they also have that their own self-drive for personal progression, for um, their personal standards that they want to attain, that they want to hit. So if you can find those people and they all mix together and then you allow them to go on and do it, then you can grow, your company can grow, everything can grow and, and everyone benefits from that. So mistakes are, the mo are in one of the most important parts of a business because they're never a mistake if you grow from it, yeah. they're, they're just a learning curve. There's just something that you learn. When did you go from working in the kitchen, being a being a chef, to thinking, right, I want to start my own business, opening your own restaurants, and tell us about that 
So we opened the Hand of Flowers uh, over 18 years ago. And it was, uh, so my wife's an artist, so she's self-employed. Well, she's kind of, she works as a technician for a very famous artist called Sir Anthony Caro. For people in the art world, they'll know who that is. He's a big uh, sculptor. He's, he, there's Sir Henry Moore, Sir Anthony Caro, who's part of, so Beth worked for him for around about eight or nine years. Um, as a technician and building stuff for him whilst having her own studio. But we we wanted to get to a point where I could cook, she could make uncompromised art without it having to be necessarily commission-led or whatever. Mm. And you go, okay, how do we how do we get to that point? So the idea was, well, we'll just open, we'll open a business. We were looking, we were work, I was working somewhere, I, I want a mission star in a restaurant somewhere. And then it was like, it's just not right. Tom, um, how can you be so blase about that? I but, love well, that. I, mean, <laughs> I, want, yeah, I want a, want a Michelin well, star. I'd, I'd, I'd worked as a, a, a Michelin star restaurants pretty much most of my career. It was a head chef's position. We maintained the Michelin star. We won it. It was great. But it was somebody else's restaurant. Okay. And, it was like, and I was like looking wasn't at... wasn't your baby. No. And I was looking for a move and go... And Beth said, look, if, we're gonna do, if you're going to go and do 100-hour weeks, you may as well do it for yourself rather than... Which was or was great. Okay, let's do it. But the the biggest the biggest fear, and it was the biggest fear that I'll always remember, is the point of going when you're an employee. You know, you know what your salary is. You know how much you earn. You rent or buy a house and get your mortgage rates for that. You get your phone tariff for whatever it is. You recognise whether you can or can't afford. <laughs> somebody at the door. Yeah, someone at the door. You recognise whether you can whether you can or can't um, uh, buy. Sky Telly, yeah. you know if this weekend you can go out for a curry and go to the yeah, cinema, yeah, yeah. you know how much money you're earning. Do, do you know what I mean? That's it. The moment you it's become... Safe. It's safe. The moment you become self-employed, it's gone. It disappears, right? All of a sudden, there's no, there's no understanding how much money you're going to get. You've risked everything. You risk the whole lot. And that was the biggest fear of just going, actually, I'm just jumping off here. I'm just all the safety of what I earn, which wasn't massive, but it was a salary. And you go, we're now dumping that and we're now going to attack. We're just going to have a go at making it. And then in your head, you go, well, if we make money, it's ours. We do all right. If we don't, well, I mean, that's the that's the risk factor. And then that feeling from day one, that's the one that I still have now, 18 and a half years later, it's still, still the same fear, still the same big thing. But we have, and I think that's you what you still have you. that now, even though you've been as successful every as you are. Every fucking day, every day. Because when I told you know my grandma, everyone's been like, "Oh, Tom Kerridge, I love him." Do you know what I mean? You so for you to say, "Oh, I still have fear," even though, and you must pick up on the atmospherics. Like I don't, no one I've said is like, "Oh, I think Tom Kerridge is a bit of a knob." Like yeah, everyone seems to really like you. Well, they di- well, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sometimes on Twitter, there's a load oh, of dickheads, yeah. but you know, but, in their transformers but, pajamas, yeah, mate. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I mean, I'm, to be honest, you get thick skin as a restaurant yeah. show. You get thick skin anyway because people have always got some form of platform to criticise or moan about yeah, stuff. Or, like restaurant, restaurants and sports are the two most criticised things by people who don't understand them across the world. Like, people will watch football and go, he's shit, he is. He's not shit, he's a Premier League footballer, yeah. right? Okay, maybe that As they're in their local working yeah, men's club, yeah, mate. Yeah, exactly. As they're sat there watching it on the telly, yeah. have, have, have they got their, you know, after they've had their, their eighth pint and they're yeah, going for a kebab. John they're mo- yeah, exactly. They're moaning at someone who might Can't have one, yeah, one, one glass of white wine a month, who's a prime athlete, who's running around, who once couldn't control a ball that came, a sphere that came at him at 70 miles an hour across the board he didn't control it first time yeah. properly once he goes he's shit yeah. he's not fucking shit right <laughs> he's way better than what you do it like he's not so sports get people get moaned at the whole time it, because 
it's visual and it's there mm. and people are in it. And it's the same as restaurants. People will go and go, oh, yeah, it's not as good as that. And, they go, and it comes from, and yeah, sometimes sports people do get it wrong. You can see people's heads have gone and they're not having a great game and whatever. And also it's the same as restaurants. Sometimes we're, we are only human, but it is your profession and sometimes things Sometimes the waiter wrong. drops a special on the floor exactly. and it can't be helped. Exactly. But they're not shit. Yeah. They've just had... Made a mistake. A, made a mistake. And it, there's the difference between the two things uh, that people don't quite see. So you end up getting a... A thick skin because you have to take a lot of it with a pinch of salt. Of course, you take criticism. Of course, you understand. And we always want people to get it right. Sportsmen always want to win, right? They always want to win. They always want to make sure that the crowd or their fans have been entertained. They've had a great time. Restaurants are the same. You always want people to have a brilliant time. You don't want people to come to a restaurant and have a shit time. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous to think that people will think that we, we genuinely want everyone to have a, a brilliant time because then they'll tell their friends and then they come back. It's a, from a business point of view, <laughs> we want to make sure that you have a nice yeah. time. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I wanted your food to be cold, man. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, How it's, stupid. Yeah, yeah. So we do, but do mistakes are made. So it's understanding, listening, adapting, controlling, but taking it all with a pinch of salt because you also have to go, actually, deep down, this is my profession. This is what I do. I know what I'm doing. And if these are wrong, I, I know when we've got it wrong, right? I know when we've got it wrong. We'll make it right. Don't worry. And the rest of the time, you have to understand that. You, you have to be your own biggest critic. So you take things with a pinch of salt and you go, okay, but and you learn from it. But then also, I do think that because people don't quite understand the business and they see that you're on the telly and you see that the restaurant might be busy or the whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean that it makes money, right? It doesn't mean, because we expand and we grow and because we're constantly adapting and moving, we have not once sat still over 18 and a half years. We've constantly opened a different place and opened that. We've opened spaces that have worked and not worked. We've lost money on this. We've opened, we, we've traded through pandemics and lost an absolute shitload. We've got to the other side. You know, there's still huge amount of company debt. There's personal losses that throughout the pandemic have been catastrophic and huge. You, people don't see that so you put on a front and you're the thing and you're the guy in the telly and, and sells books and, and everyone just assumes that that makes fucking shitloads but actually a lot of that a lot of that comes back and then has to go back into business and that has to go into that and pay off that debt and most things are operating at just above break just even just above the margins or or break even and then there's a couple of them the big as a group as a bigger thing there'll be some that make money there'll be some that are in massive losses and then at, in between the two so you're constantly in living this fear of trying to get right what have I got a balance with that how am I going to do that there's over 200 people there's five restaurants there's some that are moving and changing there's ones that are opening there's other ones that we've closed and there's a there's always it's not just a very simple equation but people only see the simplicity of it. They don't see the bigger picture. So yeah, that fear is there every day. Yeah. How um, could you talk about pressure and something you've been quite vocal on is the cost of living. Yeah. And I can sense maybe people go, oh, Tom Kerridge, books, loads of restaurants, like you said. Mm. Um, how do you deal with pressure? Like the pressure of the cost of living and, and how do you personally manage that? Uh, well, it's quite difficult. The reason why I get involved hugely in campaigning for things like free school meals, working on the full-time meals campaign with Marcus, trying to um, push um, budget-style recipes and things that people can cook at home, um, and also trying to get across um, the understanding of the hospitality industry, the the issues that it might face with the energy crisis that is, you know is is huge utility bills that are coming into businesses that you know that where it, it the increase percentage wise you know our for Hannah Flowers yearly um, bill for energy was 
uh, electricity was £65,000 a year, which it's is a joke. Punchy. But it, the first quote, when it all kicked off, the first quote was it gone from sixty-five to three hundred and fifty grand a year. Well, that's it. It's done. It's Business is done. So we didn't, but you can't buy it. But if you think you're a small little pub, your local pub where the landlord lives upstairs, that he might make thirty grand a year and go on holiday once to Lanzarote in 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 January. Okay, that thirty. If his energy bill is twenty thousand pound a year, but it now goes to eighty. Right. Where's that money coming from? But that's it. That's it. It's done. There's like, no it's magical wages fucking gone. money tree. It's not. It's not there. And it's gone. So this more, I can be vocal about it because people no, ask good. me. I find that point. So you've got to say. And then you get people that have a go at you going, well, champagne socialism, he's all right. He's like, yeah, okay. I, financially, I, I personally, I, I can be fine. But I run businesses. Now, those businesses aren't charities. So those 200 people that are employed, we can keep them going for a point in a period and if they're making loss but there will come a point where you go actually what am I, I can't, we have to shut this because it kills everything else so you go well and then if you close all your businesses that's 200 people that then made redundant or what like you have to be able to go with trying to drive and get an understanding and using your voice in a in a good way and then also the, i mean the cost of living crisis and the thing how it affects uh, um you know there's kids there's people that are on universal credit there's 800,000 kids whose parents qualify for universal credit but they don't get free school meals because there's a there's another means means testing program that they have to go through now because they qualify for universal credit they don't get free school meals but then they're they're already from the most vulnerable areas of society they're already we've already worked out that these people need financial help that are coming from the state and the government well why are their kids not because their their kids are only going to get sent to school with not nutritionally balanced, yeah. not right meals, not and the bigger thing at all, no meals at all. So we need to get a much bigger, stronger, fairer understanding of society from ground level, from working people. My background is a single parent family. My mum, there's myself and my brother. I grew up on a estate in Gloucester. My mum had two jobs. Like I understand the process that, that what those people are going through through my dedication of hard work to a, being a very lucky position that I found a, a vocational job that I've done all right at and I've built it over 32 years and got to this point doesn't mean to say just because I personally have a disposable income or a cash that I'm quite, I'm all right with doesn't mean to say I lose contact or care for what's happened for those people do you know I mean it's yeah. ridiculous we should all live in a society where we want better food education where we better food less poverty less child poverty in particular and then you go a, a transportation system that works an education system that works an nhs that is right you know there's nothing wrong with wanting all of that for everybody even if yourself you've got to the point where you don't necessarily have to worry about that yeah and i totally understand because i think the army's brilliant at that with introducing you with lads or lasses that aren't from similar backgrounds to yourself. And you know, you talk about not nutritional meals. So I was very lucky. My mum and dad split up, but was loved. I never, never wanted for anything. There was always food on the table when on holiday. But one of my mates was like, yeah, it wasn't uncommon for us to have like ketchup sandwiches. Cause, yeah. cause yeah. we had nothing else. We just <laughs> had bread. And he was like, Jeez, and yeah. I was just like, that never happened to me. I no. never would have. He was like, yeah, we just have ketchup buddies. Yeah. And you realize then that, it's not fucking ridiculous to want every kid to have free school meals, especially when we're giving, I don't know, 40 billion, was it, to uh, in missile PPE? Oh, yes, it's unbelievable. <laughs> the, the question, the question no, marks no, about where money comes from, yeah. where it goes, and what's seen as being And no one's been held accountable important. for that. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's unreal, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's unreal. I've, it, it makes me so angry that you look at it and you look at 
what it could be built on. The problem is that we live in a society, I don't want to make it a political point, but we are in a world where the people that are in power right now are empowering. So as a business owner, I understand some form of conservative policies and why you encourage businesses to do well, because if businesses do well... They employ people. They employ people. But those businesses won't do well if you haven't got a workforce. It has to be built from the ground Mm. up. You have to have a workforce that are paid enough money to be able to live you have to have doctors and nurses you have to so I always think about this one you think about the shard yeah multiple restaurants lovely food where are those the wait where's the lads of the cleaners going to live where are the you know the waiters the waitresses going to live if they've got to travel in an hour right and their first two hours they work is their like train ticket in why would they work there yeah. if they're, they're at a loss? It is exactly. It's mental, it's isn't mental. it? It's the, the thought process behind it. And I get, I do understand the encouragement of business uh, and uh, uh, and businesses should all be able to make profit. But then you look at the, the oil companies and you know, they're oh, announcing mate, multi-billion profits. Profits, profits. That, that not even they are expecting, you know, way beyond. It's like, well, hold on a minute, this isn't right. When small businesses up and down the country, it doesn't matter what business is in, it's some sort of death grip of, yeah. of like, it's like, how is it? None of this is right. It It's just so, become so disjointed. And it, it yeah, I mean, it does become a political point because these guys have been in power for 13 years and we have never had an NHS as bad as it is. We've never had so many businesses closing because of whilst whilst big corporations are making money. We've never had an education. So we've got everybody on strike. You know, mm. it's just there the, the amount of upset and, and um, uh, unbalance there is between and the people with money and the ones that are just trying to get through their daily lives in a way to survive and make sure that their kids are okay and you know they get enough food on the table and if they if they are ill they can get seen by a doctor and if they you know just the normal everyday standard mm. life you got a tooth ache yeah you can go let's go to the dentist it's not like now it's like uh, yeah you won't be able to see the dentist for two or three weeks and it's yeah. going to cost two or three you weeks probably two and three months uh, yeah it's just it's just the world the bigger outlook on society is very very difficult so that's why i get involved in it because well i get asked and i have a voice and i have an opinion and it, it it can be it can always sound political but it's not it's about supporting it's about trying to show i understand i come from that area that background i understand and i do recognize the problems that people face and it's not an easy thing to solve it's not an easy thing it's not an overnight success thing and but that world of politics and that world of just trying to put yourself in a place where you have a moral compass to trying to do things correctly is just where where we should be if we should be a better, we should be embracing of people shitting themselves and coming over on a fucking dinghy through the channel you've fucking done it yeah, you've yeah, that, yeah. like how terrifying I was is a little it? bit I was a little bit longer than 27 miles yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly but if yeah, you are you know scary, mate, yeah. Yeah, if you were a nine year old kid sat on a, like fuck it where, where's our compassion gone for people mm. like now I do understand that some of them might be wrong and I do understand like, but however the bigger picture here is we're just fucking human beings and we're all on we're all on one fucking planet we should all be a little bit more compassionate compassion and kindness would go a lot further to make it the world a much nicer place let's go back to sort of restaurants pubs you made a program saving britain's pubs yeah um now as the son of a former landlady love a boozer yeah enjoy a boozer at the weekend um what i want to know why did you want to make that show and and show 
because pubs have been under attack. They are, and they are massively. And yeah. there's a number of reasons. You, there's thousands of pubs closing every year. Okay, so it's how do we? What? Why? What is the reason of that? And it was trying to showcase the different reasons. Some of it were the own personal landlords. Um, position of what they do. The world has changed in the terms of from when you start working behind a in a pub as a as a young kid to where we are now. You know, we, people don't drink as much at lunch times. They don't. You know, the the uh, um, even now when you go out in the evening, the world is slightly different. It's not about drinking eight ten pints. It might be two or three really well looked after beers mm. you know in my, we 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 we've become about um, a lot places about quality over volume. And that doesn't necessarily lead to monetary changes. Also, the, the way that things are taxed, a, a lot of pubs are owned by pub companies that are also essentially property companies yeah. without really an understanding of the value and the margins that pub landlords can make. So there was, there's so many different reasons why pubs and pub culture, because we all, we all love the idea of going on a bike ride on a Sunday to the local pub in the countryside and going there and having Sunday lunch, which is great. But unless you go on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it's Thursday, gonna it's not going to be open because they can't make the money on a mm. Sunday lunch. And going there for a cup of coffee for uh, uh, on a Tuesday lunchtime and spending £3.50 is not going to keep that pub open. Yeah. You know, there's so many different... Uh, pubs get taxed hugely on alcohol, on rates. They're normally... The rates that hospitality businesses are on are normally higher than retail. You know, but retail is another issue that, you know, that's being attacked as well. You look at our high streets and that's because everyone's buying things online. We, as a society, we are changing. The one thing that we do miss is that... Um, we do love cultural interaction. We do love society where we, we, we mix. And a lot of those pubs, actually a lot of pubs, like a lot of estate pubs are actually meeting places. They're, they're social, they're hubs, they're networks, they're places where people hang out. They may be the place where the old guy that can afford one pint of beer a day goes and sits there at 11 a.m. and he might still be there until five because his flat's too cold. You know, they're, they're, they're very, very important. And if we keep stripping money out of them in lots of different ways, then they're not going to be around there to exist. But also the pub industry has to adapt and change. We yeah. do have to look at going, okay, well, people aren't drinking beer anymore, but maybe maybe if we did really good coffees or non-alcoholic drinks, or maybe a little bit of a food offering, or maybe a, how do we... How do you adapt and change? And, and so it, it, it's a, it was much more, that re, that show was much more about recognising of the cultural space that we are and how, it, how they're vitally important to us. Pubs are, there's nowhere else in the world that does them. That, that Other people have lots of different... Oh, the pubs in America are shit. Yeah, but they, but they, but they also have a bar culture, yeah, yeah. which is different. So they have a bar culture where it has the sport on the telly and a pool table and whatever else. And they can be quite, they, they operate in the same sort of, way and uh, you know but you might have bistros or trattorias or uh little tapas spaces or all over europe that are different or street mm. food vendors that do taco shacks in southern america or what there's lots of things where people meet up that are hubs pubs have to adapt that not it's not just about people going there to drink and get drunk now or about people going and watch the, the football match i mean you have to you have to try and make yourself a bit more um adaptive to your community collect them bring it make it that community meeting space and what is it is it about it's not now just about cheap pints of australian lager like a fizzy and don't taste of anything it's, it's now about trying to create something and, and as an industry we're getting better at it but it there will be a lot of pub casualties before we come through the other side yeah due to so many different reasons like pressures on the outside so i remember they sold the pub my 
grandma and, and mum because my granddad had unfortunately passed away and I remember thinking so Enterprise owned so it's grade two listed pud in Hamble yeah. and before we sold a so before we sold anything we used to have to pay them I think like 45 50 grand in rent yeah yet we were tied with our beer yeah we were one of the lucky ones because yeah. a lot of places are soft drinks beer spirits so they can charge whatever they want of the beer and you yeah. have to buy it from them and I just remember thinking why would they want a pub to fail that was I, we were a very sense, successful pub as I, well these are the things this is the difficulty because like I, you said property companies they're a property company they're essentially property companies they don't not many of them are still brewers there's a uh, green king is still a brewer that owns pubs that mm. you can still be tied into the beer but they have a slightly better understanding because because they are they're a brewer they get it they yeah. they, they they kind of they have a, an understanding, a I, better understanding. Am I right in saying the, I love your concept where you've got the butcher's shop in the pub. That, yeah. Is that a Green King? It's owned by Green King. Uh, yeah, the, the lease is Green yeah. King. So is the Hand of Flowers. The yeah. Hand of Flowers is a Green King lease. Um, the coach is our own, but we bought that from Enterprise. So that's mortgaged. And that's a lovely pub, by the way, but, if anyone but you, wants to you go. You have to make it. But you have, their argument would be that you get cheaper rent and that's made up by increased volume sales. But actually, by the time you look at it and you do a lot of research into it, that rent is pretty close to market value. Plus, now you're paying almost twice the price for beer. Mm. You're getting squeezed at every point. But again, a, a lot of those property companies that own um, pubs that are beer companies that they call themselves or or, or brewery co's, they go they they're they're mortgaged. They're borrowed against the property they need to pay those mortgages they need to pay those mortgages by beer sales and by high rent and then the moment it starts failing i think they, they've got themselves into a really horrible situation a circle where they can't get out because they can't afford to service the debt that they've raised for the property unless the landlords are selling beer so it, it becomes this really horrible perpetual circle and sometimes businesses and pub companies are very helpful and listen and other times they they're not and some of them are better than others so, Tom, we were talking about the hardships that other people have faced and how you help them in that program overcome them. But what about in your own career as a as a landlord, business owner, or as a chef? That one of the biggest hardships you faced. I think two thousand and eight recession was very very difficult, um, but the business was three years old, so it had no. It wasn't. It it still felt very immature and young. But I was hundred percent just in the hand of flower. So whatever I touched and did was my making you could kind of resolve it and spin it and make it work. And we got through that. That was very, very difficult. We had bailiffs on the door. We were working I was working forty forty eight hour shifts. I was trying to make everything like really, really, really hard to get through the other side. But that was me and Beth backs against the wall, working very hard to try and balance and bump everything and keep moving it and just go, just just relentlessly going. So 2008 was very, very difficult. The pandemic w was very different um, because there was, n it wasn't just a recession. It was a globally, no one knew what was happening. Yeah. It, there was no clear direction from government. So the people that you were looking for, for some form of help and guidance, wasn't really, there, there wasn't really a definitive line of what was going to happen. Again, I get it. They didn't know. But at the same point, there was no real infrastructure i think uh the furlough scheme worked it worked to for an staff. extent it worked for staff it wasn't necessarily great for businesses because you know you still have you still had national insurance to pay you still have whatever but but it's fine it, it was it was very helpful um in terms of staff confidence but as a business you don't quite know 
particularly if you're in a world of um, connection, whether, you know, uh, musicians and bands will tell you the same gallery spaces, hospitality, airline travel, tourism, anything where you're connected to human beings, you don't know where you're going. Yeah. You don't know where it's going to happen the other side. So I think those have both been the most difficult parts. But in a very weird way, I thoroughly enjoyed the pandemic. The challenge? The, the challenge. The, uh, I would be here every day with Alan. Loops He's, back to what we said at the start. Exactly. I was here with Alan, the managing director, every single day, sat in the office, sat here, working out what we're going to do. How's that going to work? What can we do? How do we come out the other side? Where have we got to cut costs? What, can, what do we spend on? How do we increase? What have we got to do? What do we do? You know, lean into the problem and, and solve it. We've got to get through this. So I hated it. I hated the responsibility. No, I didn't. I loved the responsibility, but I, I felt very conscious of people's lives, people yeah. that we employ, people that are our colleagues and friends that have got lives with mortgages and kids and whatever else that are looking at us to, we got to make the business work because where are they going? What's going to happen? They don't know. No one knows, but they look at you as a leader of going, how do we do this? So I, I relished the challenge. I really don't want to do it again. Like, but <laughs> don't I didn't. Worry, same. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't mind it. I quite, Okay, this is this is a fucking nightmare. But you're in it now. We're in it. Like you, you you're five days in now. You're fucking in. We're, yeah. We can't. We go it. We can't. Can't do anything about it. We just gotta. We can either just roll over, fucking die, or <laughs> attack it. Roll into it. Attack it. And that's where we wanted. And that's what we wanted to do. And that's how we kept driving forward. Mate, we've talked about hardship, but now let's look forward to something more positive. Yeah. So what's next for Tom Kerridge? I, I, I told, like I said at the beginning, there's no ambition. There's no, there's no end point. There's no driving point of going. This is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to get. This is where I say yes to projects that I think are good fun. I say yes to projects that are. Um, I don't mind taking risks. I don't mind like, like I just go, yeah, let's do it. Let's get a good, let's get on it. Let's attack that. Let's go and do this. And and those for me are. Um, that's the thing that's good for I just keep doing the same. Just yeah. get, we just keep doing the same. We just keep rolling and going. And and I don't I haven't got an exit strategy. I haven't got a way out. I haven't got a thing. I'm very lucky. Eighteen years old, went into hospitality, still hundred percent in it now. I don't know how to get out of it. I love it. Yeah. No, awesome, mate. And my <laughs> final question, mate. Yeah. If you could go back and give that eighteen year old um you a bit of advice, what would it be? Uh that moment where you put 350 quids worth of foie gras in the oven and then went on a break set a fucking timer dickhead because <laughs> when, when you fuck it all up you get the biggest fucking bollocking you've oh, ever had <laughs> makes me dropping a steak so not too bad Tom mate thank you so much mate really Pleasure, appreciate Jack. you coming no on thank absolutely you, love this I've got to spoke to you all, uh, all day but guys that is the end of today's episode um, if you've enjoyed it please could you follow like and subscribe as it really ha helps grow the podcast thank you for listening Tom mate Cheers, that Chief. was awesome mate that was absolutely